Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories, podcast that takes pop culture and reveals the real history underneath. I'm your host, Jem Daduchu, and what we're doing this time round is the lightsaber. So I'm going to say that I have mentioned Star Wars on many occasions. I haven't actually done that many episodes on it, but as soon as I say the lightsaber, it just has that definitive look and sound. It is a piece of movie history. It is genuinely unique in the sense that there was nothing like it before on screen. And there have been many pale imitators ever since. But this obviously gives me an opportunity to talk about swords and their place in history. And sometimes when they're used and some reasons why they weren't used. But also gives me a chance to talk about that highly beloved franchise that is Star Wars. So, before we go any further, we have to talk about... There are a number of people who are involved in the creation of the lightsaber, but what makes the lightsaber the lightsaber is the work of Ben Burt. And Ben Burt is a man who is still working in Hollywood and is a genius sound designer. And so he is the one who created that distinct... he, He basically created the sounds of Star Wars. Obviously, there is one sound for the lightsaber to be activated. And a different one, basically the same thing in reverse of when it retracts. So just those phrases along. And then, of course, as you're standing there, you've got the hum and buzz of the actual lightsaber. Which meant that every little child in the playground when they're doing lightsabers would put their hands in fists put one fist on top of each other and now you're holding it double-handed and you'd go zoom zoom and then of course when you actually locked with your friend in imaginary lightsaber jaw it'll be like and gems making kids lightsaber noises this is going well this is kind of going the direction i thought it would actually it's just joyous so ben burt basically gave children a way to just imitate the idea of a lightsaber and i remember i got a lightsaber as a kid i'll actually give you the evolution of the lightsaber toy so first of all with the case of kenner they were the ones who were smart enough to pick up on star wars toys this is what made george lucas so much money but what they did in the original star wars figures is they were pretty basic 
plastic sculpts. Weirdly, you could buy a Han Solo who had a separate gun and he could grip it in his grippy hand. But interestingly, in the case of Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker, they didn't just hold a lightsaber. Later versions of them did do that. But with both of them, they basically had a rather stiff forearm. And if you looked around the back of the arm, there was a little tab. And if you dragged that, pulled that along, it basically the lightsaber would extend out of their arm through the lightsaber extension. And there it is wiggling around. Weirdly and annoyingly, in both of them, for some unknown reason, presumably to do a production of plastic toys, there was the thick lightsaber bit, but there was a little scraggy bit of identically coloured plastic that I didn't know anybody who dared to take it off, because what if it's meant to be there? But I would say it probably looked better without it. So there we go. So that's the first way that we got to see them. But then, in the 70s and early 80s, what is it? Well, the thing is, of course, a small child's going to use it to wail on somebody, so to make it too hard might be a bad idea. So I had what could only be described as something that was good in, in theory, terrible in practice. Really what it was, was a fancy torch, or flashlight if you're American. And the hilt kind of looked like a lightsaber, but then cleverly, it had a light that obviously went up, but then the lightsabery bit, the blade if you like, was made out of inflatable pink plastic. It was Darth Vader's one, but it was in essence a really long balloon. And so somebody had to blow it up, and then once it was blown up, as you swung it around, because, of course, there's almost no air resistance there, it would kind of lag behind you. So whereas on the one hand, I couldn't hurt my friends hitting them with it, on the other hand, at no point ever as I had that toy did I feel like it was a lightsaber. It was actually more fun to put my hands together and go... <laughs> that kind of thing. Sorry, just went in there for an attack and you parried me there. Touché to you, sir. More on fencing later. <laughs> so yeah then there was that and then there was this other version that my kids got when they were little and basically again the hilt looks like a star wars lightsaber and perhaps more of you remember this one and there were the different colored insides appropriate for like is it luke skywalker's lightsaber is it obi-wan's or whatever so it could be blue green red what have you but it basically had a tube in it and inside that tube, there was a smaller tube. So what it meant is if you flicked it, all the tubes would push out, but then lock in together. So it would go, you know, well, there was no sound effect, but it would look like it's coming out of the base of the lightsaber. Cool. And because it was made out of rigid plastic, not too rigid, you could thwack your brother over the head, as I witnessed on many occasions between my two boys. You could hit each other or maybe defend each other. But of course, if you hit the little fingers, there was various crying and then throwing of lightsabers and throwing of tantrums and things like that. And then, at the kind of the same time, there were these extraordinarily high-end, like for $250 type lightsabers, which had the equivalent of a fluorescent tube in a piece of plastic. And so, in other words, it was always extended, but they made sounds, they lit up, the handles were absolutely perfect replicas of all the various lightsabers that were out there. They just look the real deal. They're the, they're the collector's items for basically people my age with kids who had disposable income. So I guess they didn't actually have kids then. And those looked amazing, but also you're never going to play with them. It's one of these things where you took it out of the box, it's now worth half. Kind of an investment. But even today, the power of the lightsaber is there in terms of toys. I'll be talking about them in the movies as well, but in terms of toys, because you can go to Star Wars Studios, the Disneyland part of the theme park, all these different places like Epcot Center, etc., the Magic Kingdom, and one of them's a Star Wars-themed one, 
And there, for again about $250, you can literally build your own lightsaber. So you're creating your own handle and your own colored blade. And it's like, that's very cool. That's also a lot of money for a lightsaber, but it is undeniably cool. It just captures everybody's imagination. And why am I talking about the lightsaber? Because I was thinking about this, and it's like, try and find something so consistently iconic in all the Star Wars movies. For example, you might turn around and say the Millennium Falcon. Well, an awful lot of the movies don't happen with the Millennium Falcon. There are some very famous scenes, but actually there are far more famous scenes that have nothing to do with it. And indeed, there's quite a few of the movies. Think of the entire prequel, and indeed, think of large chunks of the sequels. The Millennium Falcon isn't there. So what do we do? Do we call Yoda a prop or, or Chewbacca a prop? I would argue that they're characters. So it gets difficult, but I would say that if you're going to pick one thing that you would show anybody, the lighting up of a lightsaber, people get it. And it's like, yeah, we're in Star Wars territory now. So going back to the first movie, how did they actually make these unique looking lightsaber handles? They use bits of old camera kits and the sort of like the camera grips for very old fashioned cameras. Really clever. Rather than making something new, Star Wars was on a budget, quite a limited budget. So let's just use bits of other things and repurpose them in a way that nobody had ever seen them before. And I 100% are convinced that that's a real lightsaber. In the original 77 movie, we obviously see Luke wielding one a little bit, and we're told that that's his father's lightsaber, which means in the prequels, Anakin's going to need a blue one because that's his lightsaber. And also, we get a final showdown between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi. And what I find interesting is the special effects are quite varied. Be careful, because if you're looking at something brand new, they have been constantly polished over the years, not just by George Lucas, but also by Disney. So if you look at the one on Disney Plus right now, you're not going to see this. But if you get sort of an older DVD, or dare I say it, video, you'll see that particularly when Alec Guinness is wielding the lightsaber versus Darth Vader on the Death Star, there are times when you see exactly what it is. It's just a white stick with reflective tape on it. And basically, they're using very simplistic special effects to create that kind of glow effect. And that's fine. We're talking about the 70s here, and it was breaking special effects in so many different ways. But the clever thing is that the actual stuff on screen between Darth Vader and Obi-Wan Kenobi and the famous line about you should not have come back, this kind of thing, which immediately tells you that these two had clashed in the past and is like, you know, I'm now the master, so clearly Obi-Wan has bested Darth Vader in the past. There's, there's a huge amount of myth-making created in that one scene. But when Alec Guinness is actually fighting Darth Vader, these are the moves of an old man who has never done fencing before. It is some of the weakest lightsaber dueling in all of the movies. Whatever the quality may be of the rest of the films, the actual lightsaber dueling is just unspeakably mediocre at best in the first one but the clever thing about it is you don't see all the fight they keep cutting away to some of the other heroes running around the death star etc and so while what we see is quite frankly a bit naff it's obviously in your imagination that these two are dueling hard and really there's nothing better the best special effect of all is your own imagination so you know, this has also allowed people to potentially do things cooler with that scene using CGI, etc. Because why not? We didn't see all the scene in the first place. It's very, very clever. 
And then after the various movies come out originally, we go from A New Hope to Return of the Jedi. Then we have to wait a decade and a half before we then get suddenly some more Star Wars movies. And I remember seeing the trailer of The Phantom Menace. And the trailer, when it came out, crashed the internet. It's very early days of the internet. People trying to stream video on basically a dial-up. You can understand how that was going to take a long, long time to do and why it would crash the internet. Anything would crash the internet at that point, really. But when I saw it in the cinema and you get Darth Maul standing there with a lightsaber and then the other blade lights up. He's got a quarterstaff lightsaber. The crowd absolutely lost their mind. I lost my mind. That was one of the coolest things I've ever seen in a cinema. You know, even as a grown man, I, by then I was a grown man. It's It was like, that's just so cool. Because I think all of us as kids thought about what other variations of of lightsabers could we do. And indeed, you get things like Ulysses 31, this French animation, brilliant French animation, bringing to life the ancient Greek legends and mythology and talking about Ulysses, but setting it in space. And he basically had what was a lightsaber except that it was also a gun, which is, that's cool. And then on his other arm, he had an energy shield. I said, oh, could, could, could we get energy shields? And yes, actually, the Gungans have energy shields in the first one, but you're never going to see a Jedi doing that. But also we start seeing in the prequels people dual-wielding, having one in each hand. Now, what's interesting is in the original trilogy, you get someone like Luke or Darth Vader, and they're really holding on to that lightsaber. It's really quite heavy. And people were saying that, it's the force that energizes it, and therefore, if you're weaker, and let's face it, Luke is is relatively weak. He's still, in essence, a Padawan trainee when he finally meets up with Darth Vader in The Empire Strikes Back, so it's unsurprising that he can barely hold it. Whereas, when you see Anakin at his absolute prime in something like Revenge of the Sith, then, yeah, he can absolutely dual-wheel without breaking a sweat, or someone like Darth Maul with the quarterstaff one. Then you get Kylo Ren with a little crossbar with it. It's just, all of this stuff is just design inspired, but of course part of that design is the sound so 10 out of 10 to, to Ben Burt, and he did basically all the sound design for all of Star Wars. I love this fact, there is the absolutely definitive TIE Fighter sound So with that, I'm going to disappoint you. The idea was it was going to sort of shriek like a Stuka bomber in World War II, these sort of dive bombers that the Luftwaffe had. And the idea was the, the siren in it would kind of be part of a psychological weapon. It's a great idea because it is a sort of dif really distinctive noise. It is worth pointing out to you that noise needs to travel over some kind of gas and seeing that the vacuum of space has no particles in it. Therefore, everything's utterly silent in space. Sorry. To ruin that for you. Also, a bit of Ben Burt does sound design, how can I put it, creativity. Listen out to it. But as the Y-Wings and the X-Wings go in to do the trench run, they sort of like dip down and go into the trench, you can literally hear thunder rumbling. And it's like, okay, that's important. Is there weather on the Death Star? But it just it's just something else that makes it so cool. And just to give you some other things that Ben Burt did, he also did all the sound design in the Indiana Jones movies. He also did it for E.T. And he even did it sort of relatively recently for Wally. -E. I mean, he's still working today, but those are some pretty classic sci-fi or adventure movies working with some of the biggest names in Hollywood there. And yeah, Ben Burt, what a guy. 
The other thing he did is he introduced a bit of a sound design joke that has been picked up by so many other people. He repopularized in the Star Wars movies, the Wilhelm scream. Now, if you don't know what it is, I presume you've just heard it, but that, that howl, if you like, of being hurt or maimed or whatever, or dying, potentially, originally comes from a 1951 Western called Distant Drums, where clearly, the, I mean, this was just a stock sound effects. Somebody recorded it, a sort of a howl of pain, for the movie Distant Drums in 1951, and then we do not know who actually made it, we don't know under what circumstances, but it's such a distinctive howl of pain that Ben Burt, being the sort of guy who pays attention to things, noticed that it kept cropping up in lots of different places. Now, why is it called the Wilhelm scream? Because it was actually used in 1953 Western Charge of the Feather, and in that movie, Private Wilhelm dies to that sound. So Wilhelm's not the guy who created it or recorded it. It's not even the first person who dies from it. But actually, it's somebody who dies in a later film using that sound effect. Private Wilhelm, I'll pour one out for you, okay? But it means that now that sound... And there is, there's no point Greg sort of like cutting it in because this would only work in video, but you will literally hear this in things like Lord of the Rings and action movies and things like that. And it's, it's to people in the know, it's like it puts a little smile on your face, okay? And there is actually a website that gives you a listing of all the different places the Wilhelm screen can be heard, and it's a long list. So again, Ben, just love all of that. So I've mentioned some of the places that lightsabers appear, you kind of know what this means. What's interesting is, even in things like, for example, Clone Wars, the animated TV series, there's loads of lightsabers in it. There's lightsabers going on in Star Wars Rebels as well, which actually is picked up with Ulysses, and there's a gun lightsaber in that one. So yeah, that's a thing now, according to, to the lore. But what I find interesting is, obviously, the main nine movies are all around various Sith and Jedi, and so you're going to get lightsabers. But there have been two main Star Wars movies not linked to the central Skywalker saga, basically. The first one is Andor, a Star Wars story, which, you know, Andor himself is not a Jedi, and it's, it's one of the best Star Wars movies. But in that, they actually have Darth Vader in the background, and it was added, it wasn't meant to be in the film originally, but it was just I guess added for the sake of it, but there is an amazing scene with Darth Vader with his lightsaber as they show Vader in essence in his prime, going down a corridor just slaughtering all of these rebel soldiers and the sheer fear. You know, this is a, a scene of terror, not a scene of action and excitement. And it's a brilliant way of reminding you that Darth Vader over the years has been so mocked and so overexplained. It's like, let's just go back to how terrifying it would have been just before the first Star Wars movie actually being in the same room as Darth Vader. And it's just chef's kiss, no notes, perfection of how to make a baddie truly bad again. It's a brilliant scene. But then with Solo, a Star Wars story, which is, it's fine. It's just utterly unnecessary. Nobody asked for it. It adds nothing. How did he get his gun? Turns out somebody gave it to him. I mean, that's not really... I, I never worried about how he got his gun. I kind of presumed he might have bought it at some point. But no, it turned out 
he was given it by a guy. Okay, whoop-de-doo. But anyway, it, I guess they felt obliged at some point to put a lightsaber in that one, and annoyingly, kind of right at the end, there's a hologram with Darth Maul. Now, if you haven't seen The Clone Wars, you're going to think, he was killed in Phantom Menace. What's he doing there? And, and Darth Maul in that, he lights a lightsaber. That's the only lightsaber you get in that movie. No, you didn't need that scene. That scene was irrelevant. They could have put in Jabba the Hutt. It would have had the same effect. But no, they decided to put in Maul, just, I guess, so he could light a lightsaber. And also, he's not fighting. There's no point lighting the lightsaber. He's talking on the phone, or hollow phone. It's just what, just for added effects, a bit theatrical of you. And the other thing is, even if you have been following things like Clone Wars and Star Wars Rebels, then there is this brilliant arc, a story arc, with Darth Maul in it. It's, it is genuinely really well written. Clone Wars, if you haven't checked it out, yes, it's animated. Yes, it's a TV show. It's properly grown up in places. And it's like riffing off things like The Seven Samurai and King Kong, rather than just, oh, you know, let's just sell you some figures and stuff like that. But anyway, you kind of see the rise, the rediscovery and rise of Darth Maul in Clone Wars and Rebels, which is set years later, and I guess a little bit before Andor. You see what happens to Maul and why he's not in the later movies, because he goes toe-to-toe once again with Obi-Wan Kenobi in a brilliant, it's one of the, the best jewels, lightsaber jewels, and it's on a kid's animated TV show. But just all of the all of the history between the two of them, and the way it's shot, and the music, and, and just the way the whole scene unfolds. Wow. What an amazing thing. And, you know, it's like a spoiler, vague one. Darth Maul dies in it. So the point is, either you're not a fan and Darth Maul's dead, or you are a fan and Darth Maul's dead, but why show him in that movie? Apart from just to show a lightsaber. There we go. Sometimes you can get too much of a good thing in these things. All right? We interrupt your regularly programmed podcast to say, Hey, it's Jem again, same guy. Just to point out my new book, Hollywood and History. What the movies got wrong from ancient Greece to Vietnam by Jem Daduchu, me. It's out now. It's a look at Hollywood throughout its entire history from about 1900 to today looking at different eras that are portrayed in Hollywood movies. It could be Cleopatra. It could be Selma. It could be Platoon. It could be The Longest Day. Loads of different eras, different types of movies. It's a fun romp. I point out why things might be historically accurate. I tell you, this is what you see, but this is what actually happened. I am so proud of this book. It's available now. It's published so wherever you get books, you can put in a request to get it, support your local bookstore, or indeed, if you want to just get it online, wherever you want to. Look for Hollywood and History by Jem Daduchu. Thank you for your support. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? 
for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. I've got one more thing to say about Star Wars, but just before I do, as always, I'm going to say, hey guys, click subscribe, give us a review. That'd be lovely. Find me on Twitter. I'm at GemDaDooch on Twitter. Let me know what you'd like me to do next. Tell me what you think of these episodes. Do you disagree with anything? Love to hear those thoughts or people adding extra information. Just I ask to do it respectfully. Please don't. I'm not shouting at you. Please don't shout at me. All right. It all helps to spread the word. Tell people about it. I do tweet out information about upcoming episodes. Feel free to retweet that stuff. It all helps. Spread the word and love. Thank you very much. So what I wanted to say is... There have been various people mocking lightsabers over the years, and there's some people saying the greatest sword fights in all of movies, and those lists will say, we're not going to include things that approximate swords, including lightsabers. They're basically space swords, aren't they? And indeed, there are some people who rather mockingly, why are you calling it a saber? Saber's a very specific type of sword. It's a laser sword. And to the point where even Mark Hamill in the last Jedi, even he sort of like goes, that's just a laser sword, and he throws his lightsaber away, which was the big reveal at the end of the first movie, sort of handing it over to Mark Hamill. He literally turns around, that's all you see of him in the whole first movie, and then it stops there, and then we start the second one, and just right from that very first scene, it's like, okay, we're just going to rewrite everything. It's, It's disappointing. I'll give it 10 out of 10 for trying to come up with something different. I'll give it a 3 out of 10 for that different, just simply wasn't as good as what was there in the first place. Sorry. I I think I'm now done with laser swords and lightsabers and things like that, all right? And I think you're probably done with it. So, this is obviously a type of bladed weapon. Now, first of all, before I get into history history, I'm going to do a bit of science with you. Now, what's interesting is, right now, in the modern world, we are able to create lasers that are powerful enough that they can literally cut through metal the way you see a lightsaber do it with like a blast door or or some such thing and so that's a thing but there are two problems with creating a lightsaber putting aside power source because they say it's powered from the force and therefore that would be infinite whereas we would need a battery pack or maybe an electrical cable so that's a problem but anyway let's put that to one side the other two problems are one 
a laser keeps going. <laughs> you, it's not just going to stick out a meter and a half, or let's call it four feet, if you're that way inclined, and, and then stop dead. Nobody, no scientist can work out how you could possibly create something that would be an energy beam that would just stop dead at a designated length. Okay, fine. I, I, I love that idea. And secondly, of course, a laser is just light. It's light amplification. And so if I was swinging one of these super powerful lasers that could cut through a wall, if I was swinging that at you, I mean, th this is just health and safety gone mad. Just filling out the, the accident form. You, you might as well start filling out the accident form before you start doing this. And please, for the record, I'm in no way condoning this. And also these lasers are way too big to be wielding. But anyway, take my point. The, the point is, of course, if the lasers crossed, they wouldn't stop dead. It wouldn't be like clashing of sword blades. They're just light beams, and therefore they'll just instantly pass through each other. So exactly how a lightsaber works, there are some clever people saying maybe it's actually plasma, superheated plasma. It's a plasma weapon, which is a bit Warhammer 40,000, to be honest. They came there first with that idea. Although scientists say an actual plasma is an actual state of matter. But anywho, yeah, it's just pure fantasy. There's no way you can make them in the real world. And that's okay, because this is all meant to be a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Okay? All right, fine. Let's... Let's move on, shall we? But it is a sword. And you all know what a sword is. But what I find interesting about swords and bladed weapons is there's a real history behind them. Because the very first sword that has been discovered so far, it's old. Properly old. It's nearly Five and a half thousand years old. It's from about 3,300 BC. And it's from Arslan Tepe in eastern modern-day Turkey. This is thousands of years before the Turks ever came into the area. It is on the edges of what we know of as the Babylonian Empire. Maybe the Hittites, although they came much later. It's, it's an area that seemed to have been in the hinterlands. It's also some metalworking, which it makes it some of the oldest metalworking ever, full stop. The sword itself is more like what we would call today a dagger or short sword. It's not very long. It's all cast in one piece. If you think of a modern-day sword, the blade's one piece of metal, the hilt's another piece of metal, so blah, blah, blah. You've got all these different pieces of metal sort of like put together. I mean, these things are a work of art, obviously, but it's all in one piece. It's all cast in one piece because that's as far as the technology could do. And you might be going, well, if it's metal, it's got to be bronze. There's the Bronze Age. You're right, the Bronze Age does indeed come before the Iron Age, but this is older than the Bronze Age. There was a short period of time of a Copper Age. Now, copper and tin mixed together gets bronze, and bronze is just so much better in every possible way than copper. What this is, is arsenic mixed with copper, and so it is a compound, it's better than just pure copper, but this is some of the very earliest smelting technology in the world, and it was used to make a sword. So this is actually a really important archaeological find. And actually it was found with a number of other swords, which weren't as old, but they weren't far off the 3300 BC. So clearly they found a centre of arms manufacture at a time when this would have been the stealth bomber of the age. This is technology that other tribes around the world could only have dreamed of and would have given them an unhealthy advantage whoever these people actually whatever they named themselves it is a fascinating bit of prehistory 
So this is on the very edges of what we would have called the Neolithic. So when we talk about Stone Age, it's like, well, you know, it's just the tools they had. But once they got the technology, once they understand what they can do, then they start smelting metal and this is what we get. So a pre-Bronze Age sword is the first ever sword, predating lots of other types of weapons. But then let's go into the Bronze Age. I'm going to fast forward, oh, I don't know, about 2000 years so we're into the archaic era in Greece, or indeed we're in Egypt, and you don't see swords anywhere. Well, yes, there are swords, so there are a basic kind of sword in ancient Greece, that's true. It's not the main weapon of choice, because bronze is relatively soft. That means if you hit somebody's shield with it, it means it could bend, which makes it useless. It dulls the edge, it doesn't hold an edge for very long, you need something harder. So something like iron or steel, that would be better. And so it was a weapon of last resort. And if you look at the ancient Egyptians, they weren't all running around with swords. They were running around with these things that kind of look like scythes, these very curved blades to give it some kind of chance to cut. And also spears. Spears are everywhere, including ancient Greece. And so this is the thing. If you are that classic Spartan warrior, you may have a sword but you don't really want to use it. You'd much rather use a spear because you can keep somebody at bay with a spear. It's easier to keep a spear sharp. It's cheaper, so you can basically produce more of them. You've just got bits of wood and a little bit of bronze working there. And also, it doesn't matter if it's not particularly sharp. If I jam as hard as possible a stick in your ribs, that's going to hurt. And if it's got a metal tip, it's going to hurt even more. So if you like, because of the limitations of metal technology then the sword only goes so far. Then let's go to ancient Rome, where we've got the gladius, the classic weapon of the Roman legions. This is a short sword, which can be used to stab at. It's got a sharp end. It's got a blade on both edges. So this is the perfect close quarter weapon. Other swords later on in history could reach further, but this thing I could jab at you, I could slash at you, and if I've got my shield as well, that makes me quite formidable. What's interesting is, it's not Italian. It's actually from Spain, and it was picked up by the Romans. The Romans, every time they were up against somebody, it was like, oh, that was a hard fight. Then they would incorporate that. And therefore, it was during the Punic Wars against Carthage. That's when the Republican Rome took over the Iberian Peninsula, and that's what the locals were using as a weapon. And then it became a standard weapon for a Roman legionnaire. Obviously, the term gladius for a sword is where we get the name gladiator from because, yes, lots of them fought with swords, but they fought with other weapons too. Then, let's jump to really far away to the Age of Samurai, the feudal Japan, and the katana, which is the d distinctive main weapon for a samurai, except actually they had lots of different types of sizes of swords. Some samurai would prefer to work with spears. All of them were trained also with the bow. They were very good marksmen and maces and so on and so forth. But just for the sake of abbreviation and for Hollywood cliches and also Japanese movie cliches, we all know that the good guy wields a katana. That's just historical fact. Yeah, right. But why are they so good? Because they kept folding the metal. And, and this is the thing. The Romans were in the Iron Age. But sometimes they would smelt iron filings in the back of the furnace and back of the forge. And they didn't realize this, but they were mixing in enough carbon and there were enough carbon impurities that you would end up getting steel. Normally, to create steel in the modern world, you need a forge that is so much hotter than iron 
But the cheat of that is if you've actually got iron filings. If the metal is ground up, more carbon's going to get mixed in as you're moving things around the charcoal, etc. So they just called it good iron. We actually know it as steel today. So again, because of all this folding and folding and folding of metal, this iron was actually steel in Japan. This multiple folds meant that it was extremely rigid. It, again, it, it sort of like mixed in alloys. If you look at the edge of a, of a katana, it's got this kind of wavy color of, in essence, impurities. But it's those impurities that, are, in a way, make it a little bit more supple as a piece of metal rather than brittle, and therefore less likely to break, but easier to hold an edge. And a slight curve is on a katana. Now, if we think of the classic Middle Eastern scimitar, that's much more pronounced curve. And then if you're in Europe, completely straight. What's the difference? Well, if it's straight, it's easier to parry. There's more of the sword to knock out your weapon out the way to protect myself. That's a payoff because the more of the curve that if I hit you with that curve, of course, the force is going to force that curve further into you. And as it's biting into you, I'm getting more and more of the edge, so it creates a deeper, bigger wound. So if you like, the katana is a compromise between the two, but in essence the scimitar is actually a more aggressive sword-like weapon, and a broadsword from Europe is a more defensive sword-like weapon. And I just find that fascinating as a trade-off there. And so let's move on into Renaissance time, into the 1600s and things like that. And we now have a very different way to fight wars. We now get the era of fencing. Yes, in theory, fencing could have been a thing in, let's say, ancient Egypt, standing there, man against man, wielding a weapon with each other. But with fencing, you've now got these types of swords. And I'm going to now update it to what it would be in the Olympics. There's the foil, the epée, and the sabre. Now, I was actually on my university fencing team. The most useless of martial arts. You know, you're not going to get out of a barroom brawl if you, you're really good at epee, which I kind of was. I'm not going to say I was really good, but that was my one of choice. Foil is basically a learning weapon. It has a, a basically a, a a protector over your hand, so it's almost like a, a cup, a bowl around it. So, uh, you know, I can't really sort of like accidentally jam you in the fingers. And it's a stabbing weapon. It doesn't slash. There's no blade to the edge of it. It's all about poking you with it. And there are all these rules about blocking and counter, uh, you know, a riposte is where I block and attack you. And if we stab each other at the same time, but you started just before me because you started the attack and I didn't try and deflect the attack, although we are now both skewered on each other's foils, you started it so you get the point and I don't. And it's that kind of ludicrous arbitrary ruling, which is why almost everybody moves off foil pretty quickly. But it's a great way to teach you the basic skills. The other thing is that in foil... It's the trunk of the body. So from the groin up to your neck, that's all on target. But then with epe, it's the same as what I've just described. You know, it is, again, a pooking-type bladed weapon. And the difference here, though, is if we stab each other in the guts at the same time, we both get a point. But more importantly, everything is on target. So you can very cheekily, you can be sort of like waggling your sword in their face and then suddenly jam it towards their foot and if you hit the top of their foot that's still a point that's more like it that's really clever and then there's saber which is basically the hooligan's weapon because now you can slash people as well and the idea is you're meant to flick people with it so you can poke them but you can also slash at them and so there are completely different rules they're completely different guard sets and you can literally rush at people and i got banned from the university team with saber and i'll tell you the story because, like I say, you're meant to flick at their wrists. You're not meant to put in all your weight because that's dangerous, okay? This is still a sport. 
But the problem was, I was doing a bit of Sabre. I was kind of intrigued with it because it was so different to Epe and I wanted to give it a go. And I was up against another person in, in the club and they kept raising their, their arm. So if you like, their hand was near their head. So there's this beautiful target. Basically in Sabre, everything above the waist is on target. So from the head down to the, to the, to the tummy. And they kept showing me their forearm. It was a ludicrously easy target to go for. And I just completely lost my cool. Uh, it was very unlike me. I'm not normally like this, but I just couldn't believe this person was presenting such an easy and obvious target with me that, and I, I'm so embarrassed to tell you this, that rather than just flick it and hit it, which would have got me the point, instead, I'm, I, I'm really, I, you can't see my face now, but I'm cringing at this point. I literally jumped in the air and with all my might brought down that blade onto that person's forearm whilst shouting, eat hot lead sucker. I don't know where that came from. I hit them with such force, the blade, the stainless steel blade broke on their arm. And as I and the sword blade came clattering to the ground as the other person cried out in pain, clutching their arm, you you could have heard how hard I was blushing. I just, the red mist descended. I did that. And they just, everybody went, Jem, take your stuff off. You're done for today. And I, just, I, I obviously caught up with that person and I apologized profusely to them. They kind of saw the funny side of it after a while, but I gave them a wicked bruise on their arm. I was so lucky not to have like cracked their, their arm. So there we go. So that's the wonderful world of fencing which isn't nearly as gentlemanly as you would like to think but people literally did have duels sometimes it was just who would cut blood first sometimes it was to the death etc duels later on evolved into pistols etc so this is a real thing that used to happen and it's obviously evolved into an actual sport so there we go. I, I've taken you through the history of swords. I've given you a horrible confession. I have other stories about fencing. I don't know if I'm ever going to fit them in, but I, I've given you a doozy. I've given you one of the best ones so far. And the point is that swords have been an integral part right up until World War One. It's worth pointing out that almost all sides in World War One, particularly at the beginning and at other times, did do cavalry charges. So the last great cavalry charge in British Imperial history was actually the Battle of Omdurman, which was Winston Churchill's first ever battle. That was in the late 19th century in East Africa. But there were British army charges and French and German charges during World War II. Once, obviously, all the barbed wire was up that, and with the machine gun posts, etc., that made it much harder. But yeah, there was actually a need to have horse cavalry, in which case... It's widely considered by military historians. Finally, it took the Britain till World War I to get them the very best saber, cavalry saber for attack. All the other ones, like at the Battle of Waterloo, etc., were all fundamentally flawed compared to the French ones. But at the time of machine guns, gas and airplanes, finally, we get the right sword for the British army. Well done, guys. Only about 250 years too late. Oh, well. Anyway, on that point, as always, another episode coming soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.